0: Vitality Radio. I'm your
1: host each and every week. My name is Jared St. Clair. It's good to be with you again on another episode of Vitality Radio and the Vitality Radio podcast. Okay, I've got to get going here. I've got a great interview with a fantastic guy. If you're interested in alternative options when it comes to dentistry, you're going to love this conversation. I promise you there's some pretty pretty fascinating stuff here. And I've already done that interview in advance, so I know how much time I have for my rant and it's probably not enough. So I'm going to have to go pretty fast and it is time for the vital rant.
2: In a world full of often confusing messages about health, let Jared be your guide through the smokescreens of corporate greed, media bias, government ineptitude, and propaganda. When you see what is really happening, you'll be ranting too. It's time to expose the hidden agendas. It's time for the truth. It's time for the Vital
1: Rant. Okay, the New York Times released an article a little bit ago, and uh, I just discovered it yesterday, and it needs to be in front of you. It needs to be in front of everybody in America. In fact, I would highly recommend that you find it, that you share it on your social media streams, that you share it with your friends and family, because this is information that we need amidst this pandemic. It's an article by Apoorva Mandavelli. I hope I said that name right. A Purva Mondavelli. Anyway, it is in the New York Times. It's called Your Coronavirus Test is Positive. Maybe it shouldn't be. From September 17th was the update. It was actually written August 29th, but it was updated September 17th. And I'm sorry, I just found it now that this is old information, and that makes it even more viable and more concerning. That nothing's being done about this. I've known about these issues for a little bit of time now, but I didn't know the detail until I dug into this article. And I want you to understand that this is in no way an opinion piece. My rants are oftentimes loaded with opinion. I always try to make sure that uh, I have my opinion fully backed by research. But in this case, this is the opinion of four major league virologists and epidemiologists. And a fifth, a guy you may or may not have heard of, Dr. Anthony Anthony Fauci, sorry about that, uh, and what he has to say on the topic. And the topic is a little, it's a little technical, but the article spells it out pretty well. I'm going to read a lot of stuff word for word because some of it needs to be that way. I'll interject uh, some ideas uh, here and there as well. Some of the nation's leading public health experts are raising a new concern In the endless debate over coronavirus testing in the United States, the standard tests are diagnosing diagnosing huge numbers of people people, who may be carrying relatively insignificant amounts of the virus. Now, right now, on average, 20% of the people getting tested are uh, positive across this country, according to this article. That seems high, right? Especially since they are testing a lot of asymptomatic people at this point. Most of these people are not likely to be contagious, the article continues, and identifying them may contribute to bottlenecks that prevent those who are contagious from being found in time. But researchers say the solution is not to test less or to skip testing people without symptoms, as was recently suggested by Centers for Disease Control. Now, that was, remember, two months ago that this was written. And the Centers for Disease Control now uh, seems to be cool with asymptomatic testing. Certainly uh, in Utah, where I live, Governor Herbert is wanting to test everybody, just about, symptomatic or not, and wants to test all college-age kids every week, according to his most recent dictation or mandate. But this article continues and says, it's not about not testing or testing less, or even not testing people without symptoms. Instead, new data underscore the need for more widespread use of rapid tests, even if they are less sensitive. Now, sensitivity is what this entire situation is, and I want to dig into it and make sure you understand because it's very important. Dr. Michael Mina, an epidemiologist at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, referred to the CDC recommendations and said, we should be ramping up testing of all different types of people, he said, but we have to do it through a whole different mechanism. The most widely used diagnostic test for the new coronavirus, called a PCR test, provides a simple yes or no answer to the question of whether a patient is infected. We've been using one type of data for everything, and that is just plus or minus. That's all, Dr. Mina said. We're using that for clinical diagnostics, for public health, and for policy decision-making, i.e. masks, lockdowns, and so on. But yes-no isn't good enough, he added. It's the amount of virus that should dictate the infected patient's next steps. It's really irresponsible, I think, to forego the recognition that this is a quantitative issue, Dr. Mina said. So, he's saying we need to be careful that we look at how much virus is being found to determine whether or not people that are found with the virus are infected to the point where they can be contagious or even potentially become ill. And this is important because you can literally come into contact with the coronavirus. At this point, maybe most of us are or have without ever actually becoming infected with it. That doesn't mean that it can't be on or in your body. It just means there's not enough there to do anything. And that is very, very important. So it's a quantity issue, according to Dr. Mina. The PCR test amplifies genetic matter from the virus in cycles. The fewer cycles required, the greater the amount of virus or viral load in the sample. The greater the viral load, the more likely the patient is to be contagious, this number of amplification cycles needed to find the virus, called the cycle threshold, is never included in the results sent to doctors and coronavirus patients, although it could tell them how infectious the patients are. Now, that seems like a huge oversight to mean. That means that doctors literally have no idea, and neither do the patients for that matter, if the patient is even sick, let alone contagious. And yet that information is available. It's just not being used. In three sets of testing data that include cycle thresholds compiled by the officials in Massachusetts, New York, and Nevada, up to 90% of people testing positive carried barely any virus, a review by the Times found. On Thursday, the United States recorded 45,604 new coronavirus cases, according to a database maintained by the Times. If the rates of contagiousness in Massachusetts and New York were to apply nationwide, and there's no reason to believe that they shouldn't, then perhaps only 4,500 of those people may actually need to isolate or be submitted to contact tracing. 10%. Now imagine if every day in the news, instead of hearing 45,000 new coronavirus cases, we heard 4,500 new coronavirus cases. That's substantial. And what's important, I talk about the fear tactics, I talk about all this stuff all the time, but what's important from a simply diagnostic standpoint is if we are diagnosing 45,000 people a day, or at least on that particular Thursday, with coronavirus, but only 45,000 people are actually infected to the point of potentially being ill or contagious, then we have 40,000 people that are wasting their time quarantining and everything else. And what's really important about that is that means that the 4,500 people are like a needle in a haystack in terms of figuring out who actually is contagious. Everybody you hear, including Governor Herbert here in Utah, is saying we need to find out who's got it so we can quarantine and prevent them from spreading it. Well, how about finding out who's actually got it, who is actually potentially contagious, and quarantining them The amount of money being spent, the amount of time being wasted, and the amount of people flying under the radar who could actually be spreading this, instead of all these people who probably are no risk at all, is staggering. And I use the word staggering, but here in a minute you're going to hear epidemiologist after virologist after epidemiologist using very strong words as to why this is a problem. Now, one solution would be to adjust the cycle threshold used now to decide that a patient is infected. Most tests set the limit at 40, a few at 40, at 37, and some at 45. This means that you are positive for the coronavirus if the test process requires up to 40 cycles to detect the virus. This is indeed the solution, according to me. And according to Dr. Mina, and according to many other experts, but it makes perfect sense that if we just scale back, if we just scale back the cycle threshold low enough, we can have far less cases that are insignificant and focus on only the cases that actually matter. So let's talk about this threshold for a minute. Keep in mind too, that as I said, these are four respected virologists and epidemiologists quoted in this article that all agree the government is getting it wrong and that they're potentially making things worse, not better. Tests with thresholds so high may detect not just live virus, but also genetic fragments, leftovers from infection that pose no particular risk, like finding a hair in a room long after a person is left, according to Dr. Mina. Any test with a cycle threshold above 35 is too sensitive, agreed Juliet Morrison, a virologist in the University of California, Riverside. I'm shocked, she said, that people would think that 40 could represent a positive. A more reasonable cutoff would be 30 to 35, she added, but Dr. Mina said he would set the figure at 30 or even less. Those changes would mean that that the amount of genetic material in a patient sample would have to be 100 times or even a, a thousand times that of the current standard for the test to return a positive result, at least one that is worth acting on. In other words, if you ramp these things high enough and get the sensitivity high enough, almost anybody could test positive. Even if they've never even had it, they've had a little bit of a fragment of the virus in their body, eventually it will find it if you crank it up high enough. It's just kind of mind-blowing to me that people are not recording these values from all of these tests and that they're just returning a positive or a negative. Angela Rasmussen, a virologist at Columbia University in New York. Now, she's mind blown. Uh, The previous virologist was shocked. The Food and Drug Administration said in an emailed statement that it does not specify the cycle threshold ranges used to determine who is positive and that commercial manufacturers and labs set their own. Well, what's the FDA there for? We're in the middle of a pandemic. They can't set the threshold and tell these people how to test? They're supposed to be the experts, along with the CDC. But listen, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention said it is examining the use of cycle threshold measures for policy decisions. The agency said it would need to collaborate with the FDA and with device manufacturers to ensure the measures can be used properly and with assurance that we know what they mean. Well, that's a great idea, CDC, but it isn't happening. Isn't it just like the government here we are in a pandemic, and the FDA and the CDC apparently haven't made time to do lunch to come up with a simple number for a threshold for testing. What are we paying these people to do? It isn't like the CDC hasn't looked into this. The CDC's own calculations suggest that it is extremely difficult to detect any live virus in a sample above a threshold of 33 cycles. And yet these tests are starting at 37, going all the way up to 45. That is a huge problem. And yet while they know this, they have done nothing about it. Even the god of COVID, Dr. Fauci knows this. Listen to what he has to say about it. What is now sort of uh, evolving into a bit of a standard that if you get a cycle threshold of 35 or more,
0: that the chances of it being replication competent are minuscule. Mm. So, that if somebody, and you know, we do, we have patients, and it's very frustrating for the patients as well as for the physicians. Somebody comes in and they repeat
1: their PCR, and it's like 37 cycle threshold. But you never, you almost never can culture virus. Yeah. From a 37 threshold cycle. So the, I think if somebody does come in with 37, 38, even 36, you got to say, you know, it's just, it's just dead nucleotides, period. And yet nothing, common knowledge among the greatest experts in virology and epidemiology and no action. And we've known this for months. Officials at some state labs said the CDC had not asked them to note threshold values or to share them with contact tracing organizations. An example, North Carolina State Lab uses the thermal fissure, which has a cutoff of 37 cycles. That's at least seven too high, according to Dr. Mina, and too high, according to Dr. Fauci. This amounts to an enormous missed opportunity to learn more about the disease, some experts said. It would be useful information to know if somebody's positive, whether they have a high viral load or a low viral load, Dr. Angela Rasmussen added. Officials at the Wadsworth Center New York State Lab have access to CT values from tests they have processed and analyze the numbers at the time's request. In July, the lab identified 872 positive tests based on a threshold of 40 cycles. But what if the threshold had been 35? Then 43% of those 872 tests would no longer be positive. And what if the threshold was 30? would no longer be judged positive if it was 30. In Massachusetts, from 85 to 90% of people who tested positive in July with a cycle threshold of 40 would have been deemed negative if the threshold was 30, according to Dr. Mina. I would say that none of those people should be contact traced, not one, he said. Other experts informed of these numbers were stunned. I'm really shocked that it could be that high. The proportion of people with high CT value results, said Dr. Ashish Jha, director of the Harvard Global Health Institute. Boy, does it really change the way we need to be thinking about testing, he said. With 20% or more of the people testing positive for the virus in some parts of this country, Dr. Mina and other researchers are questioning the use of PCR tests as a frontline diagnostic tool. He said that highly sensitive PCR tests seemed like the best option for tracking the coronavirus at the start of the pandemic. But for the outbreaks raging now, what's needed are coronavirus tests that are fast, cheap, and abundant, enough to frequently test everyone who needs it, even if the tests are less sensitive. It might not catch every last one of the transmitting people, he said, but it sure will catch the most transmissible people, including the super spreaders. That alone would drive epidemics practically to zero. Now, again, none of that is my opinion. All of that is according to the experts, including Dr. Fauci. And yet, here in Utah and across the country, they say test, 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 test. More tests, more tests, more tests. The more tests, the more positive, the more restrictions, the less freedom and the less effectiveness at actually fighting this virus. What is going on here? Why aren't we paying attention to the actual experts who say we're doing it wrong? Instead, we just keep doing it wrong and keep doing it wrong. And while the death rate stays almost identical, the positive rate climbs massively, creating more fear more government intervention in our lives, and less effective fighting of this illness. It's got to stop. And we have to be aware, as the population here in Utah, where I am, and across the country, we have to be aware of the inconsistencies in what is happening here and the truth that is being completely ignored. Thank you so much for listening to me rant. I appreciate it. I've got to cut to a quick break. When I come back, Dr. Paul Larson will be on talking about alternatives in dentistry. I don't know if that sounds exciting to you, but if you've had some dental stuff, especially if you've had negative stuff happen inside of your mouth at uh, various dental visits, or if you're just wondering if there's a better, more natural way to go, there is. And I'll talk to Dr. Larson about it when I come back. If you have any questions about anything you hear on Vitality Radio, you call us 801-292-6662. That's 801-292-6662. I'm Jared St. Clair, and this is Vitality Radio. After decades of helping people with their nutritional supplement needs, I have observed something that seems almost universal. People seem to have a lot of products that they have experimented with, Some might have been recommended by a blogger online, others from a magazine article, and yet another by a friend or family member. Information is coming at us at a rapid pace nowadays, and everyone has an opinion. The problem is that there is only one really big wild card in health and nutrition, and that wild card is you. I know you've heard the infomercials, seen the ads, or talked to that neighbor who has that cure-all product that can do it all for your health. The problem is, that supplement doesn't exist. What's right for your neighbor isn't always right for you. At Vitality Nutrition, we've been asking the right questions for years. What I mean by this is we don't just sell supplements. We consult with our clients and ask them the key questions needed to make sure we match the right supplement to the right person. If you feel better about a team approach to your health, give us a call and one of our well-educated Vitality team members will answer your questions and help you find just what it is that you need to address your health concerns naturally you can reach us at 801-292-6662 that's 801-292-6662 or drop us an email info at vitalityradiopod.com that's info at vitalityradiopod.com Welcome back to Vitality Radio. I'm your host each and every week. My name is Jared St. Clair, and I appreciate you joining us again on Vitality Radio. I hope you enjoyed the rant today and uh, that it got you thinking a little bit. My next topic, the primary topic of today's show, is something else that I hope will get you thinking. One of the things that I really try hard to do on Vitality Radio is bring things to you that you were unaware of uh, that can be useful for your health uh, alternatives to things that you think there isn't an alternative for. And uh, that's the whole idea about uh, or behind today's show. Uh, before we get into my interview, though, I want to remind you that Vitality Radio is always brought to you by Vitality Nutrition in Bountiful, my family owned store for over 43 years now. We are thrilled to still be there alive and kicking and doing well in uh, these crazy times that we're in, ready to serve you with all of your health questions and needs. If you have any questions about anything you hear on the show today or anything about your health at all, you give us a call at 801-292-6662. That's 801-292-6662. You can also visit vitalitynutrition.com or vitalityradio.com. Okay, so the topic today is dentistry. Now, I will say this about dentistry and Vitality Radio. 13 years in, I've almost never talked about it. I mean, little bits and pieces here and there. I've talked about fluoride and a couple of other things, but I've not talked about dentistry in depth. And the biggest reason is I'm no dental expert. In fact, I'm a dental patient who's had all kinds of dental issues in my uh, 40 plus years here on this earth. And so I found myself an expert. He is fantastic. And uh, I'm going to interview him in just a minute. But the first question I have for you listening is, Isn't all dentistry about the same? You find a dentist with a personality that you like who takes your insurance and you're all good. Well, take it from me, a man who has had plenty of dental issues, like I said, uh, throughout my life. Not all dentists are the same. And more importantly, not all dentistry is the same. Today, I have a special guest, my dentist, my personal dentist, Dr. Paul Larson, is with me to talk about an approach to dentistry often referred to as holistic, natural, or biological dentistry. Welcome, Dr. Larson, to Vitality Radio. Well, I'm excited to have you. As you know, we've been talking about this for, I don't know, maybe six months, so it's good we're finally doing it. And uh, for you listening, I'll tell you that uh, this won't be the last time he's on. We have some a lot of... Uh, really great side topics within dentistry beyond what we're going to be able to uh, talk about today. So I'm really, really excited. We're going to uh, kind of take a bird's eye view of holistic dentistry today and talk about a lot of the key points in general, but we'll go into some more depth on future episodes as well. So, Dr. Larson, you are a SMART certified dentist through IAOMT. Before we talked, you said that was the International Academy of Oral Medicine and Toxicology. I think the uh, toxicology part is probably the most important word there. Uh, SMART stands for Safe Mercury Amalgam Removal Technique. Now, A lot of people, I think, have heard of the potential hazards of mercury in the mouth and potentially have heard of mercury removal. So we'll talk about that for a second in just a minute. But I also wanted to uh, talk about your history a little bit before we get into that so people can get a a little better feel for you. Uh, When did you graduate dental school?
2: I graduated June of 2003, which is 17 years ago, 17 and a half years ago. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, out of the gate, you were doing basically conventional dentistry.
2: Yes. Out of the gate, bought a practice from a very uh, conventional dentist. Uh, He was a great dentist, Dr. Sidney Ray here in Bountiful, and took over his practice, very much what you'd call bread and butter practice, fillings, crowns, extractions, root canals, kind of the whole gamut.
1: And uh, so you started out uh, doing conventional dentistry and then you told me before we talked that it was only a couple years in that you discovered that mercury might be an issue. Is that right?
2: Yeah, I was probably t- two, three years into practice and decided I didn't like working with the silver filling materials. I didn't like the way the teeth broke around them. And I preferred working with the composite materials. For me, there were Easier to work with, gave a better result in the tooth, and were less damaging long term. Was was the the approach I was taking. The reason I stopped using the amalgam fillings at that time.
1: Okay, and that puts you. Uh, I, I mean, kind of thinking back about my history and uh, working with diff- different dentists that I've worked with before. I found you. Uh, th- that's fairly early in. I think a lot of dentists 15 years ago were uh, probably using more amalgam. Uh, Have you noticed uh, talking to other dentists, going to conventions
2: and things like that, that more dentists are getting away from the amalgam fillings? More and more, yes, are getting away from them. The challenge becomes, unfortunately for certain groups, their insurance will only pay for that and that's all they can afford. And so there is still a significant percentage of, of practitioners, dentists that are still placing amalgam fillings Patient's mouths. Would you say that more than half do? If you had to guess, I would say it's really close to that. Probably a little bit less close to that, but close to fifty percent still place amalgam fillings. Okay,
1: all right, uh, very interesting. So when with the amalgam, we're talking about mercury. The EPA. The Environmental Protection Agency says there isn't a safe level of mercury. However, uh, there are a variety of places in medicine where we receive mercury. Vaccination, dental amalgam, uh, there's a few others as well. Didn't you uh, just tell me recently that the FDA even came out and said there may be issues with amalgam in the mouth?
2: Yes, in the last week of September, September 24th, they released an issue. There are uh, FDA recommendations for certain high-risk groups regarding mercury-containing amalgam, dental amalgam. And the FDA says that they had found that certain groups may be at greater risk for potential harmful health effects of mercury vapor released from the device, the device being the amalgam filling. And uh, What groups do they mention? The groups they mentioned specifically were pregnant women and their developing fetus, fetuses women who are planning to become pregnant, nursing women and their newborns and infants, children, especially those younger than six years of age. And there's a real problem with that one because those are the kids that are on chip and Medicaid. And that's, those are the insurance companies that only pay for the amalgam fillings or the mercury fillings to be placed. So there's a, there's a huge, uh, discrepancy there or, uh, inequality maybe there for those kids. People with pre-existing neurological disease, such as multiple sclerosis, Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease. People with impaired kidney function and people with known heightened sensitivity or allergy to mercury or the other components in the dental amalgam.
1: Hmm. That's an interesting last statement. Uh, known hypersensitivity to, to mercury or, or uh, allergen to mercury. I don't think that there's a single soul on this earth that doesn't have <laughs> a sensitivity to mercury. Um, whether it's known or not might be a different story, but I think that probably uh, mm-hmm. classifies all of us in that group in, in my view. Yeah. Okay. So for 15 years-ish, you've been doing only ceramic fillings, but the certification you achieved mm-hmm. uh, is for safe mercury amalgam removal. Now, the biggest concern with pulling mercury out of somebody's mouth. My understanding is the mercury vapors that would then go essentially straight into the bloodstream uh, during that process. Is that accurate?
2: Yeah. So, the, the big worry is as you're taking out that mercury filling, the heat and the, the process of removing that filling, there's a lot of mercury uh, vapor that's released, uh, significant amounts. It's right underneath your nose. You're inhaling that uh, as a patient. Uh, you're swallowing it, you're ingesting all sorts of particles and and pieces of that material as it's being removed And so the process that uh,
1: you do is designed to take all of the vapor out so that it doesn't end up in the patient yep okay and you how long have you been doing this We've been doing
2: this for uh, over five years now okay and you've had a lot of success with it we have we have it's it's uh, becoming one of my favorite procedures to see the changes in the in the teeth and in the health of those patients.
1: I like the second part of what you said, uh, see the changes in the teeth, and then you said, and in the health. I think it's important for people to understand that I think the reason holistic dentistry is the best name for the type of dentistry that you do is because we're looking at the whole body, not just the mouth. We're looking at what happens in the mouth and how it would impact somebody's body uh, potentially. Is that right? Yes. Yep. And so with mercury removal, we're trying to get the mercury out of the mouth because we want the mercury out of the body and out of uh, and 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 reducing toxicity uh, within the body. Mm-hmm. So I want to do a whole show on mercury removal mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff for sure. But let's jump into uh, a couple of the other unique devices that you have, unique therapies that you do to improve the overall uh, wellness of someone's mouth as well as their body. One of the things that I'm the most fascinated by and that I've had the most success with in your practice since I've been seeing you is the ozone. Mm -hmm. Uh, Talk to us about that and why you use ozone.
2: So ozone is a, we have an ozone generator in our machine. We take medical grade oxygen, run it through an ozone generator. Some people call it ozone, other people call it activated oxygen. Essentially, it, it, Creates an O3 molecule, which when it's injected in the body or interacts with bacteria, has amazing effects uh, systemically. Uh, Kills bacteria, kills virus, kills parasites. When it's injected in the body, it increases blood flow, increases production of nitric oxide, lots of of really, really cool things.
1: Yeah, the ozone thing is really interesting too, because early on in this COVID thing, you shared an article with me by uh, the guy that. It sounds like, anyway, from reading his stuff, was kind of maybe the main guy in dentistry that's recommending uh, that dentists use ozone. And he talked about the success that uh, some clinics had had with even using ozone uh, with COVID, what it can do against viruses, bacteria, fungi, and all that kind of stuff. It was really fascinating stuff to me. And I've since had you do it on me on a, a number of things. What's kind of happening. Uh, for you listening out there with Dr. Larson and I, as he's going into my mouth and kind of fixing a lot of the stuff that uh, didn't quite work that other dentists have done, uh, replacing root canals and things like that, and doing some really uh, unique things that I had never had done before in in terms of how he does those things. And ozone is a big part of it. And I've done a fair amount of research on ozone, not nearly as much as you have, Doc, but I'm, totally fascinated with it. I think it has uh, wide ranging benefits in, in dentistry and, and beyond uh, for sure. And I know you and I both had have had conversations about that. But alas, there's much to talk about. So let's jump on to the next thing. Uh, you do something called PRF. As you mentioned to me last time I was in and you did it on me the first time, that's a, a really new one for you. Yeah,
2: we've added that about a year ago. It's plasma rich fibrin, uh, similar to PRP and and some other predecessors to it. We draw blood from the patient. We spin it in a centrifuge at a certain speed and time and separate uh, out the platelets. What we're left with are white blood cells, healing products, products that help to develop or regrow blood vessels, uh, stem cells, and we use that mostly in extractions and bone grafting areas. to help the body to heal faster, help to clean up the infection. Essentially, our goal is to use the body's own ability to heal itself by using the patient's blood that way.
1: So let's talk about that for just a second. Prior to PRF and using the patient's blood as uh, as the patch, essentially, what were you using?
2: So we would use exclusively cadaver bone, um, and we would put that in there. We'd mix that usually with their, for a while we were mixing it with with uh, ozonated water until we started the prf before that we would just mix it with some of the patient's blood out of the out of the socket Uh, place that into the the grafting site or the extraction site and then we would use a an artificial membrane a similar to gore-tex type of a membrane and suture that into place to hold the bone graft into in the socket while it was healing
1: and i've interestingly enough had uh, both of those techniques done because i came and saw you prior to you getting PRF. Mm-hmm. And now since I've had you do an extraction with the PRF and it's, it's really fascinating stuff. You, I, am you know, clearly more inquisitive than probably some of your <laughs> patients, but, uh, you know, I asked a lot of questions and you showed me what you were doing and it was, mm-hmm. it's fascinating. Very, very cool. and And I think it's important. You, you nailed it right on the head in my view, that uh, the approach you're taking now is the approach that the body would normally use to repair itself anyway. Everybody knows that when you you know cut your finger or burn your finger, the body immediately goes to work to fix that issue and uh, heal it up. and the the body's tissues are designed to be self-healing to a large degree. And so if we can use our own our own tissue, our own blood, first off, we know that this is going to be, a material that our body will have no reaction to because it's our own material that we've that we've created within us and that it's a fantastic way to heal the body because that's how the body is meant to be healed
2: yeah yeah essentially we're just concentrating those healing products of the the body has and yeah that's extremely cool
1: I love it. Okay, and then you uh, hooked me up to this machine that was interesting, where uh, you put my chin in a in a kind of a tray, and then this uh, big camera uh, wrapped around my head. And uh, that I, that might sound bad, but it wasn't not uncomfortable at all. <laughs> so don't be scared. Uh, it's called the cone beam. Uh, yes. Talk to us about that because that was pretty cool too. So we have
2: a, a cone beam a CBCT machine. Don't worry, those of you who are listening, it's very similar to a panoramic x-ray machine that you've been in before ours does play star trek music so jared was trying not to dance when he was listening to it (laughs) it was good though but what it does is it gives us a three-dimensional picture of of the tooth in question or all the teeth teeth if that's what we're looking at which gives us just the ability to diagnose so much better than with a two-dimensional x-ray especially on a root canal tooth or a tooth that may be fractured when we go to place implants we can we can really measure how wide is that bone how tall is that bone do we have room to place an implant safely what size can we place in there without interfering on any any important structures nerves or sinuses or things like that when an implant's placed
1: so it's really just a, a, a way to get a complete view before you get in there of of what's going on so that you can be more precise with the procedure is that essentially what you're doing Yeah, yeah, it
2: is, um, especially for the implants, but as far as the diagnosis goes, if you have a two-dimensional x-ray, your normal x-ray that you get at almost every dental office overlaps all the layers of your tooth onto that one picture. And so you've got, you know, all this structure that's overlapping and you can't see what maybe something that's behind a tooth or on the front of a tooth because there's other structures in between it, whereas the combing, we can break it down into 600 slices and see every little step through that tooth or top to bottom and side to side and see where an infection is. If there's infection, if there's a fracture.
1: Yeah, that's, that's awesome. I thought that was very cool too. So uh, we talked about mercury in the beginning and the potential dangers of mercury. The fact that the FDA finally in 2020, Has admitted that there are probably more issues with mercury than they previously had released any information on, uh, which is a a step in the right direction, a little late, but a step in the right direction. Root canals. Now, I've had a few, more than my share, and I think that root canals are probably the other big thing besides mercury that um, I've read the most potential hazards uh, with in terms of once you have a root canal it can actually impact your health beyond your mouth in a very negative way. Uh, what what have you found about
2: root canals? So just uh, kind of disclaimer of where I come from. My dad is an active practicing endodontist, only does root canals. <laughs> okay. Um, I initially thought I would be an endodontist coming out of dental school or going into dental school, I should say. So yeah, root canals, I'm glad that you said have the potential of being a very significant health issue for for patients uh, I'm not certain that every patient has major reactions to it but I we do know that a root canal the procedure itself leaves a dead tooth or a dead organ inside the body which nowhere else in medicine is that done if you have a, a gallbladder that dies or a kidney that dies is not functioning it's taken out not that that's the best thing we'd like to avoid that way beforehand with Preemptively, you know, with diet and, and lifestyle changes, if that's possible for those organs. Same for a tooth. But a dead tooth, we just know is an inherent risk for the body.
1: Okay. And you're not opposed to root canals. You're concerned about root canals being done correctly. Is that a safe uh, way to put that?
2: Or, or what, how would you put it? <laughs> root canals are tricky, just to be honest with you. Root canals can be done in a better way. But there's no way to completely sterilize a root canal, a tooth that you do a root canal on. When you do one, you use ozone a lot. I know
1: mm-hmm. uh, to do your very best job of cleaning things up. Is that is that accurate?
2: Well, I actually uh, I'm not doing root canals anymore. Oh, you aren't doing okay. No, but but yes, that is the most most efficient way. the The best way to clean a a tooth is to use ozone when a root canal is done, mm-hmm. because the the ozone gas you can actually put the ozone gas inside of a. A tooth that's opened up and it will penetrate into the tubules of the tooth and kill more bacteria than any other procedure or technique for a root canal. Okay,
1: all right. Now, what you've done for me, and this is you know just talking you know very personally about my experience with dentistry in general, and then working with you, is I've had a couple of root canals that, as I put it, and I'm, I'm sure this is the technical term for it, <laughs> have gone bad. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> where. <laughs> There's been infection that's crept in underneath the crown or a variety of other issues that, that have happened. And you've worked on three of those in my mouth now. So just really quickly, kind of walk us through the process of what you did in my mouth to clean up a root canal that had gone south.
2: So typically when a root canal fails or goes bad, it's, it can be there's infection underneath that crown or something like that or decay under the crown. The, the real problem is the infection or infected tissue at the end of the tooth where the abscess will develop. And that's why a tooth gets sore when you bite on it. Uh, or if you tap on it and that tooth feels different than anything else, you're biting on infected tissue at the end of those roots. So what we did for you is we, we take out the body of the tooth, the roots and and the root canal filling material. And then the, the big part is that you have to go in and you have to clean the infected tissue that is now encircling the ends of those roots up in the bone and that's where there's lots of scraping and and cleaning and ozone water and ozone gas and and we make sure we're down to good solid bone structure we remove that pdl or the periodontal ligament to make sure the body knows that it's supposed to grow bone back in there and we're not leaving any infected uh, particles in there
1: so that's where the ozone, in my case, has come in in a in a big way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then at that point, uh, depending on where the tooth is, the the option would be to put the cadaver bone, like you were talking about, and the PRP, and uh, eventually add a an implant. Is that mm-hmm. accurate? Correct. Okay. Yep. And then in some cases, you can just heal it up. And and if it's, I've got one in the very back of my mouth that I'm not going to do an implant in. I just have uh, the bone has grown back, and I'm I'm missing a tooth at the very at the very back of my mouth. I think it's really interesting because one of the things that I think is really important that I try really hard to get across on Vitality Radio is that whether you're in a dentist chair or a orthodontist chair or you're in a podiatrist chair or you're in your MD's office or you're in the emergency room, you are working with someone who is going to do their best to try to fix whatever's broken, essentially. But there's risk in all of this stuff, right? When you start digging into the body in some way, there is the potential for risk. And it can come from anesthesia and it can come from uh, materials that are put into the body that the body may have a reaction to. And it can come from surgical infection. And there's a variety of different things. And so one thing that I always push really hard in, in my own life and in my family's lives is if we can let's just try and fix all this stuff on our own as much as we can and avoid these types of procedures. Now, at a certain point, certainly in my mouth, a tooth has gone too far or uh, there's an issue uh, you know, in the tissue beneath the tooth or, or that kind of thing. And, and then you need an expert that can go in there and help you out. And one of the things that I respect so much about you, uh, Dr. Larson, is that you've actually spent the time educating yourself on all of the options as to how we can do this with the very lowest level of risk of infection or uh, you, the work that you've done going bad after a, after a while.
2: Yeah. It's it's frustrating for me. You know, a patient will come in and they'll say, Oh, you know, this tooth is hurting and we'll diagnose it. Oh, okay. you got an infection in this tooth. And they say, well, it's had a root canal. How can it hurt? Well, any of you who've been told that once you have a root canal, you'll never have to touch that tooth again. That's not true. And hopefully, you were just in a lot of pain when they were describing the procedure and you, and you didn't remember correctly what was told, but <laughs> <laughs> root canals don't last forever.
1: But you're not convinced that that's uh, always the case, huh?
2: I, I'm not certain because I have so many patients come in and say, well, I thought I was done with that tooth. I thought I'd never have to touch that tooth.
1: Well, listen, I'm one of those guys. I, I didn't think that a root canal would fail you know, 10 years later, 20 years later, whatever it is. And certainly it can fail sooner than that, I know, mm-hmm. particularly if it was, you know, not done well. Uh, and and then the problem with that is that as with every other part of the body, the mouth is a part of the body and it's, it's attached to the same blood vessels uh, mm-hmm. that lead to all the other parts of the body. And so an infection in the mouth can uh, end up as uh, a problem systemically and create issues that you may never trace back to your mouth. Right. And yet uh, you can have issues, and I've had issues like that myself. My dearest friend was diagnosed with lupus, and he found out that he had an underlying infection in a dead tooth that he could not feel mm-hmm. that was uh, infecting his body systemically and uh, creating pain in his hips and knees and not in his mouth. So there's there's a lot of stuff to consider with all this. And if you're in the need, of dentistry, you're in the need of, of dental intervention or whatever you want to call it, you darn well owe it to yourself to find a dentist who is aware of uh, all the different potential processes that can happen and all the different types of ways that these procedures can happen to give yourself the best odds of a uh, lasting uh, repair that doesn't create uh, issues down the road. Mm-hmm. All right. So now uh, we've pretty much covered everything except for one thing that you mentioned you wanted to talk about that I didn't even know you really did anything with that uh, was pretty fascinating to me. And I'm I'm excited to hear more is sleep apnea. Now that does end up being uh, kind of in the dentist chair kind of a thing uh, in many cases with mouthpieces that are made for people and that kind of thing. Talk to us about sleep apnea and how people may be treating it now, what the issues
2: are and uh, what you do. Yeah. So sleep apnea is, I mean, we all know it, you're stopping breathing for a certain amount of time, a certain number of times every hour. The interesting thing with sleep apnea is, is currently there's two ways to treat it or uh, conventionally, we'll say there's a CPAP or you can get what we call a mandibular advancing appliance, which is an oral appliance, which moves your mandible and tongue essentially forward. Which opens your airway so you breathe better is easier. Your, your tongue doesn't drop back. Your soft palate doesn't collapse as much. Less snoring and less apnea episodes. The interesting thing that they, they found in research, research has shown that if you have a certain, maybe you have mild or moderate sleep apnea today and you're treated with a CPAP for the next five years, you're going to definitely have moderate, possibly severe sleep apnea in five years the cpap does not treat the cause of it it treats the symptoms yes you while you're wearing it you're not stopping breathing but but the condition is progressing continually so some new new therapies and treatments that that we've been studying and learning about over the maybe the last year almost year and a half now are appliances that help to regrow the airway and they're showing really really exciting uh, five-year studies with patients that they've regrown airways with these appliances, and five years later the patient still does not have sleep apnea when they're sleeping without an appliance or without a CPAP. So overcoming the that.
1: Yeah, I want to uh, chime in here because I think it's really important. Uh, you just said something really powerful, uh, I think, and that is that someone might actually be able to not have sleep apnea. Now, my understanding about patients with sleep apnea is that about the only thing that gives them any hope of not having it in the future is weight loss in many cases. They'll tell you, well, if you lose 30 pounds or 50 pounds or whatever, the apnea may may go away. Short of that, and especially with people who weight isn't a factor in the apnea, I think people are just essentially told this is how you are and this is how you'll be and we're going to take care of the symptoms with the CPAP. Is that essentially what you've seen?
2: Up till I've started learning about this system, it's called uh, Vivos, V-I-V-O-S. I I mean, sleep apnea is is an interesting thing. It's been evolving over the last, what, 10 or 15 years. It used to be, it was the overweight person that had sleep apnea. You know, one of our measurements or guides to uh, screen patients was how wide was their neck. Anymore, that's all out the window because of the size of patients' airways from orthodontics when they were kids? Did they have teeth extracted as part of their orthodontic treatment, which then shrinks their airway because they took out teeth and pulled things back together to make your smile look nice. But in the meantime, they've collapsed your airway by doing that. So there's a lot of evolutionary and just anthropological changes that have occurred over the last decades that everybody's airway is kind of shrinking. And so this is a way to, to look at regrowing that.
1: That's really, really interesting. So that's a separate therapy that you do uh, specific to people who have been diagnosed with sleep apnea mm-hmm. to give them an option outside of the traditional CPAP.
2: Correct. Yep. Usually takes 18 months to two years of, tre- of active treatment. To
1: me, that sounds like a heck of a a, a fair trade-off. 18 years or 18 months, sorry, Mm -hmm. two years of treatment in exchange for a lifetime of being able to breathe at night. Without a machine, I've never, I don't have apnea and I've never been on a CPAP machine, but I've seen CPAP machines. Uh, I've actually roomed with a couple of people uh, at trade shows that that use one. It seems like an absolutely horrible way to try and sleep for the rest of your life, Mm -hmm. Uh, especially if it's making the condition worse.
2: Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's not treating the condition, it's treating the symptom. Which conventional right, which medicine of course is is normal,
1: is what medicine does. Yeah, exactly. Well, that is awesome. You've given us a ton to think about. We're running up against our timeline, but we did get all the topics in in at least uh, some uh, some level of uh, detail. But I definitely want to talk more about these things in the future with you, Doctor Larson. I'd love to have you on again soon to talk about mercury and ozone and a variety of other things in more oh. depth. In the meantime, will you please let uh, those listening know
2: how to reach you? in your office? So our office is located here in Bountiful, close to Vitality. I've been a customer at Vitality before Jared came to see us, so we appreciate them and all they do for our family with their knowledge and and support there. We're located at 395 East. That's our old address, sorry. 415 (laughs) Medical (laughs) Drive, (laughs) Uh, Suite D201 in Bountiful. Our office phone number is 801-295-8881. Website is Larson Family Dental at dot uh, com, and our email is Larson Family Dental at Gmail dot com. Okay, and so uh, the phone number uh, just two more times for the people mm-hmm. that uh, are uh, listening on the radio 801 295 8881. 801 295 8881.
1: Awesome. Hey, Dr. Larson, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for the good things you've done in my mouth. I will be honest and tell you that I don't enjoy coming to see you uh, as a general rule. (laughs) I don't take that personally. (laughs) (laughs) But I will also say that uh, as dental experiences have gone, uh, and this is, if you weren't standing here, I tell people this all the time, it's the most pleasant dental chair I've ever spent time in. And uh, I I always feel confident that when I leave, uh, the best work has been done on my mouth that is possible. So thank you so much for the excellent work you do and for bringing this information to my listening audience. And again, we'll have you again on soon.
2: Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity.
1: Absolutely. Okay, so we need to wrap up the show today. Before uh, they kick me off the air, uh, Dr. Larson uh, is is awesome. If you have questions, if you missed his phone number, call Vitality, 801-292-6662. That's 801 801- Two nine two sixty six sixty two. We have his business cards there, and we'll be happy to uh, shoot you his information so that you can get in touch with him. If you are not near Bountiful, if you're listening uh, far and wide, there are many excellent uh, dentists out there that do take the approach that Doctor Larson takes, uh, looking at the more natural approach. And uh, if you look for biological uh, or holistic dentists in your area, you should be able to find some good ones. I highly recommend you check reviews. Make sure that they have. Half happy patients, but uh, hopefully you are uh, within a a drive of of, uh, Bountiful and uh, can come see my dentist, Dr. Larson. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your desire to improve your health and to ultimately obtain your best level of vitality. You've listened to me, Jared St. Clair, and this is Vitality Radio.
0: been listening to the vitality radio podcast enjoy your week in the meantime jared will be feverishly searching for the latest nutrition info to educate you on and wading into mounds of propaganda to help steer you through it vitality radio is researched and written by jared st Clair, produced by elizabeth joy Wyndham, with very limited help from jared our awesome music is by brian bob young Hello, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Vitality Radio. Just a reminder that this podcast is for educational purposes only. This podcast has not been evaluated by the FDA. This podcast is provided with the understanding that the information shared is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This podcast is not a substitute for professional care by a medical professional. Thank you.